following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. I realized this week uh, I'm kind of angry at sin. And I've, we're in Hebrews 12. We're still going through Hebrews. Um, the series keeps extending because Hebrews is just thicker and deeper than I realized. Today was going to be a big chunk. It's going to end up being three verses. We'll have to cover the rest of that chunk later. And one of the things that comes up is this discussion about sin. And as I was preparing this this week, there's part of me that reacts a little bit like, man, you're going to talk a lot about sin on Sunday. After we just talked about resurrection, we just focused on the glorious fact of Jesus being able to forgive our sins because of his resurrection and his death. And here we are coming back. Is it a step backwards like we just talked about grace and, and now we're going back to sin? But it's not, because part of our understanding of grace has to do with our understanding of sin. And part of our understanding of God's love for the world and for us involves an understanding of why God had to come and die for our sin, why sin is such a big deal. And I was seeing news stories this week like the Boy Scout abuse scandal that's now breaking. Yesterday, I think it was, a dude drove his car into a crowd of people. There's slander cases in the news. I could see lots in the headlines. But I was watching a show last night in, in which a character in the show does wrong to another character in the show. And the person who was wronged says, do you understand the ripple effect of what's happening here? Do you understand that when you did this, you impacted my life and it's going to go on impacting my life? This wasn't a small thing. And it struck me that as I look at my life and I look at my family's life and people here in the family of our church, sin leaves a legacy. And it's a legacy that God steps into and forgives and brings healing to, but it's a legacy nonetheless. And it's why the Bible makes a big deal about it. God loves us. He is for us. He gives us the path of righteousness for our good and for the good of the world. And whenever the Bible talks about the importance of fighting against sin, it's this reminder God has given us the tools with, with which to resist this. We have his word. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the, the people around us here in the church. And as we get into this part of Romans 12, just once again, just a couple verses, we're, we're going to focus a bit today on these things in our life that step in and threaten to shipwreck our faith to rob us of these good things that God has offered to us. But I'm going to start with Hebrews 12, verse 1, just to give us a little bit of context before we move into the new verses today. Therefore, this is referring back to Hebrews 11. We'll get to that in a second. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off anything or everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We covered those verses the week before Christmas. Here's today's text, and I'm adding some commentary to it just to help us understand some of the language that's being used here. Intently observe and analyze the life of Jesus, the one who endured such personal attacks and hostility from sinners, so that you will not grow weary, and that word has to do with in the moment, so you won't break down in the moment, and you won't lose heart. That word has to do with over time, something just steadily beats you down. 
so that you won't grow weary or lose heart like the contenders in the games who, when exhausted in bodily strength and courage, yield to their opponents. Among you, in your boxing against sin, this is good Olympic Games imagery here. Earlier in Hebrews, the writer was using a lot of imagery for racing. Suddenly, the writer moves to boxing. And you're boxing against sin. None of you have resisted the pressure to the point of death as Jesus did. So chapter 11 was on faith, and it ended with this list of martyrs, people who gave their life for the sake of Jesus. Chapter 12 starts with a reminder of this martyred cloud of witnesses, which are meant to be an inspiration to us as we live our lives. And then promptly, the writer moves Jesus in. Jesus is better than. This has been the theme of Hebrews, right? Jesus was better than Abraham. He was better than Melchizedek. Jesus' law is better than the law. Everything Jesus is greater than. He's better Writers doing this again. There are people who have given their lives for the sake of God, but Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Look to him as you box with this sin that causes us to falter. So considering chapter 11, the first couple of verses of chapter 12, I think a lot of what the writer is referring to here has to do with how persecution can, can cause us to fall away from the faith if we're not careful. But then as you look into what the writer transitions into in the next few verses, which we're going to have to deal with either in the next week or two, this is also something something about just sin in general, that we live in a world where there are things that come against us and seek to rob us of our faith, to shipwreck our faith, to take away from us this, this enduring running that we've been doing. This confidence that God has given us, something scares us or intimidates us or overwhelms us. And rather than it causing us to push further into our faith, it causes us to retreat. So that's what I want to talk about today, is three different sources of these kind of temptations, these things we box with in life, so to speak, that if we're not careful, they can be something that causes us to falter or to lose heart. So first of all, James says we are sometimes just drawn away by our own lusts. In other words, sin is sometimes just this thing, we want something, and we go after it. We know what's outside of God's design, and we just don't care, because it looks good, and it looks promising. The problem is, sin wears us down over time. It'll, it'll numb our conscience. It hurts our souls. It changes how we view God. It's going to change how we view people. It's going to hurt people around us. Sin builds its own kind of momentum and leaves its own kind of legacy. The tricky part is it's often fairly enjoyable. The Bible makes this clear. There is pleasure in sin for a season. Lots of sins are a lot of fun. Nobody amen to that, I noticed. For at least a time, it's in the Bible. For at least a time, a lot of sins are a lot of fun. But you always pay the price. The wages of sin is always death. You might not know it in the moment, but you'll know it somewhere down the road. And if we keep engaging in these things we know to be sins, but we continue to choose them and we decide, never mind, we're going to do them anyway, I think we begin to wonder if God really has our best interest in mind because these things, at least in the moment, are really enjoyable. They're really likable. Why would God say, I can't do this? It's the oldest temptation in the Bible 
The first temptation we see come to humanity is in the garden where the serpent, the deceiver says, did God really say, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? I don't think God understands. If you eat from this, if you experience this, oh, it'll be amazing. I don't know why God would want to rob you of that. So we see this play out in our life different ways. We have someone that we think of as our enemy. They've wounded us or hurt us personally, or they're taking some kind of public stance that goes against our faith or something we stand for in our faith, and we think of them now as enemies, and we wonder, did God really say I have to love my enemies? It sure is a lot easier just to lash out at my enemies, to insult them, to demean them, to kind of berate them, to make them look foolish. I don't know if God understands just how unlovable my enemies are or how wicked they are. Did God really say be radically generous with those around me in need? Did God really say that? I don't think God understands how hard I've worked for my money, how much I want it to do things, and how much those people who need money just don't deserve my money. I don't think God understands that. So God says, be generous, help those around. I don't don't know. Does God really insist that my speech is not free? I talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's an American ideal, not a biblical ideal. As a follower of Jesus, you don't get free speech. We are commanded to guard our tongues. The tongue is a fire. It's full of potential wickedness. The, The tongue can kill people. But I don't think God understands how important it is for me to say what I want to say, how I want to say it, even if it hurts and offends people around me unnecessarily. Could God really mean that for me? Did God really say stay sexually pure? I don't think God understands my sex drive. I don't think God understands my needs. Uh, I don't think God understands how difficult it is to live in the 21st century. Did God really say... I must honor and serve my spouse in a way that reveals how much God loves the church. God clearly does not understand my spouse. Right? That's the temptation. And we're drawn away from this path of righteousness, this thing we know God calls us to do because there's something about the opposite that really looks good or really feels good or feels right in some sense to us. And then we begin to question God. Did did God, is this really what God has in mind? And then we answer our own question, not out loud, because we'd be embarrassed to actually say it out loud. But we reach this conclusion that we know better. Ah, I don't think God did understand. Or maybe if we're really spiritual, we'll find some way to massage Scripture in such a way that it supports these things we know don't mirror The character and nature of God is revealed in Jesus, but it's really something we want to do. And so we figure out some way to get around it. Now, I love it when people tell me that they're fighting against sin, that they're boxing. I mean, all of this language in Hebrew is like, you got to do work. There's discipline. I mean, God is helping you. There's no way you succeed without the help of God, but there's sweat equity in the kingdom. Right? We're not passive, lazy followers of Jesus. So we're boxing, and people tell me they're boxing against sin, but I always have a question, and that is, are you really? Are you really? 
Because sometimes there's these real simple things in our life that really don't bother us that much. And so we conquer them and we're like, dude, did you see the fighter that I am? But we're not digging down deep into these sins that are really getting down inside of us. The ones we know are the ones we need to address. We don't fight them. We pick the straw man. We pick the easy target. That's why I always wonder, are you really? Are we really fighting sin when we say we're fighting sin in our own life? The story is told of the Bible of the Pharisee who's praying in the synagogue. Oh, thank God, I'm not like that sinner. Right, that's the danger, right? We can find a sin that someone else does and go, oh, thank God I'm not like that. Look how much I have conquered that sin. And that wasn't a sin that was even tempting you. But, but now we feel like warriors, but we chose the weakest opponent we could possibly find. And then we can put ourselves on a pedestal because we don't struggle with that sin. And therefore, therefore what? I mean, what follows from that? That you're clean? That we don't have sin? Just because I don't struggle with that sin, where does that place me? On my knees at the foot of the cross. Because I have other sins. God forbid that I become that Pharisee who says, but I'm not like that sinner and completely ignore the things that God has challenged me on. I was talking to Scott about this, and he heard a speaker once say that he would get a lot of cheers when he would speak to Southern Baptists about abortion. And then when he would speak about gluttony, all he got was glares. I think you can broaden that list. I suspect if he would speak about greed or envy or bitterness, he would get glares. I suspect if he talked about porn, the room would just go silent. Because it's one thing to say, because I don't struggle with that, I will point that out and I will feel good about my battle against sin. That, That might not be the thing you need to battle against, friend. We've all got our own thing. There is a sin that easily besets all of us. That's the one that we're called to look at. I can't think of help but the trajectory of Paul's life. Paul, three times in his writing, mentions about how much of a sinner he was. The first time, when you go chronologically with what Paul has written, early on he says, I'm the least of the apostles. By the end of Paul's writing career, he says, I am the worst of sinners. In Paul's mind, this trajectory and his self-awareness of how much he needed Jesus went from, you know, I'm the least of the apostles, but I am an apostle, to, oh, wow, I'm the worst of everybody. Like, his trajectory of self-awareness went up in terms of how desperately he needed Jesus. At the same time, here he was killing people. He was a murderer. And he comes to Jesus And by the time he's done writing, I mean, Paul wasn't perfect, but certainly Jesus did a work in Paul's life. So even as Paul's sin quotient goes down, his desperate need for forgiveness goes up. 
because Paul knew himself. You get the impression he was honest looking inside about what was going on in his heart. The longer he was in Christ, the more he saw this internal war that was raging inside of him. And what I take away from this is that the longer we are in discipleship, the greater awareness we have of the sin that crouches at our door, or the Bible describes it, lurking in our hearts. And because of that, we have greater humility as we address issues of sin, and we have more and more grace that we offer to others who are wrestling with sin because we understand the grace God has given us and the grace that people around us give us. So we aren't wrestling with sin if we're only tackling sins that don't put up a fight in our lives. I just want to, I want to stay here for a little bit. I've had people tell me these things. I'm struggling with porn. Or I'm struggling with purity in my heart. I'm trying to be a better, more godly husband or wife. I'm wrestling with my love of money or my love of food. I'm boxing with guarding my tongue. I'm wrestling with being too critical or not being honest with people. I'm trying to be lovingly submissive to my spouse. And I always, I, may God give me the strength to always ask the follow-up question, are you though? Are you? Are you really fighting? Are you really on your knees praying for God to do a work in you? Are you really really surrendering yourself in accountability to others? Are you going to the people that you hurt and asking how they've experienced you and if you need forgiveness? Are are you are you working? Are you though? The Bible says that that we have to die to ourselves, that we climb up onto an altar daily. If we're going to follow Jesus, this is not a simple life. Jesus did not call people to a life of ease. He called people to a life of death. Every day, says the biblical writer, we climb up on this altar and we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which the writer says is our reasonable act of service, a response to God's love for us. And that's my question, is that what we're doing when we say that we're fighting or we're struggling or we're wrestling with something? Or are we just thinking about it a lot? I think there's two ways that holiness can be mimicked. I'm calling it faux holiness or foliness. I'm copywriting this. There's two ways this happens. I am full of dayquil this morning. Starting to leak out. Number one, by taking a strong public stand on sins, we don't struggle with personally while ignoring our own sins. Now listen, I have no problem with calling sin, sin. We as Christians, especially within the body of Christ, we must be bold about identifying the path of righteousness as God lays it out in Scripture, right? I don't have a problem calling sin what it is. But if we aren't confessing our sins to others, I don't think we have any business calling out the sins of those around us. That's what the Bible refers to as hypocrisy. So I would say it this way. Our public confrontation of others should only follow our public confrontation of ourselves. Here's what I mean by public confrontation of ourselves. I don't mean you need to announce it to the church. I mean there must be somebody else in our lives that we are going to and saying, listen, 
this is my sin, and I don't mean the easy sin. I mean the one that's deep inside, that's really dug its claws into us. Those, we've got to be in this process, in this habit of going to one or a few people close to us and saying, listen, I need you in my life as a godly voice and a godly presence. This is the sin that is threatening to trip me up. This is the sin that is hurting people around me. This is the one. I mean, confess it to God, right? Confess it to God. But we've got to confess it to others. Somebody, not everybody, be appropriate. But listen, if we're going to talk about sin publicly, if we're going to say that's sin and God is angry, but we better not be doing that unless we are going to someone else and going, this is my sin and God is angry at that sin. I need to deal with it. Once again, hear me clearly. This doesn't mean we don't identify sin as sin. It just means if we're going to do that for others, we had better be doing that with ourselves. And if we're going to do it publicly for others, we had be better be doing it out loud to someone else. Are you with me? This is the biblical way it works. Secondly, we, we can mimic holiness by conquering molehills of sin in our lives while leaving the mountains unaddressed. So Jesus calls out the Pharisees and he's like, guys, you're tithing on your mint and you think you're amazing? And I'm going to paraphrase this. Nobody cares. You're, you're ignoring the weightier matters of the law. And by weightier matters of the law, and I think other places you see in Scripture where there's language of the greater sins that deserve greater condemnations, I think we're talking about there are some sins that leave a ripple effect, an impact on people around us that are much more greater. If you don't give 10% of your mint, Pharisee, there's like zero ripple effect, maybe .0001% in some fashion. But this other stuff you're doing, like not healing on the Sabbath, all these other crazy things you have in place, you think you're righteous because you tithe your mint and you're missing all of these big things. I was trying to think of analogies. It's like power washing a condemned house or fixing a windshield in a car that doesn't run. It's house cleaning that avoids the real issues. And then it might even look really good depending on how well we house clean. But if the foundation's falling apart, we've got a problem. So listen, if bitter sarcasm is ruining your marriage, I'm not that impressed if you come to me and say, hey, I've started helping my wife do chores on Saturdays. That's not your issue. Now, I'm happy that you're helping to do that. But, but if you're feeling good about that, you can clean all morning and humiliate your wife with your words. That make sense? I was thinking of this back during my porn addiction days. I didn't really tithe then either. If I had started giving money to God, and I do, but I'm talking back then, I really wonder what God's response was like. Yes, Anthony, you've got it. That's what I want you to focus on. I doubt it. I really doubt it. What does the Old Testament say? To obey is better than sacrifice. I have a feeling, had I felt good about that, I, I think God had been, really? That's what you thought needed fixing in your life? Are you bribing me? 
Are, are you sacrificing something that costs you virtually nothing so that you can avoid this thing that's going to cost you a lot to deal with? This is my opinion. If we're going to fight sin, go big. Right? If you're going to fight sin, go big. Solomon wrote this warning, beware of the little foxes in the vineyards. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the idea was, don't let the little things grow because they'll ruin the fruit of your life. But if there's little foxes here and there's an elephant over here trampling my vineyard, which one do I need to deal with first? Yeah, you can, right, you can say it, the elephant. That's the one, friends. Now, I need to deal with the little foxes. It doesn't mean I ignore them. But that thing that is trampling my life and my house and my workplace and my church, that, that's the thing. If you're going to fight sin, go big. Because that's one of the things, one of the things that if we do not box against it, with all of God's help and with all of our might, this is a thing that is going to knock us out of the race in some fashion. We're not going to experience what God has offered to us. Our witness is going to stumble. The second thing that can lead us to falter in our faith is Satan, or the Satan. Satan is a title in the Bible to describe this evil spiritual entity that is gunning for us. So the Bible uses different language. A cunning serpent, a wild animal that crouches at our door, an accuser who tries to sift us like a farmer would sift wheat at the time. So there's a time in our lives for what we call spiritual warfare. And if you're a Christian, angels and demons are a thing. I know some places in culture people are very skeptical and very critical of people who have an active view of a supernatural world, but that's part of the package deal. We as Christians are dualists. We believe in two aspects to reality, a physical world and a spiritual world. And in that spiritual world, there are righteous and there are evil entities that are either for us or against us. So there's a time when our faith is being challenged, when we feel like we're crumbling underneath the weight of some kind of attack, that the response is not to box against sin because sin isn't the thing we're fighting. The response is to box against Satan. Because we are fighting spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't see this or talk about this a lot in generally Western culture. But if you've ever been in a country or you've talked with missionaries who've been in a country where voodoo is practiced, where there are witch doctors, etc., then you know that there is a very active kind of spiritual warfare in which you see these kind of powers aligned against each other and the power of Jesus is crucial for winning this fight. We don't win that fight with anything in our own power. I mean, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee. I think the resistance is calling in the forces of God. And God fights for us. Satan must be resisted. He will flee. I think I'm actually in the near future going to do a whole sermon on this just because we haven't talked about it in several years and I think it's very important. I want you to know on Sunday mornings, I typically come in here and I walk around and I pray. And one of the things that I try to remember to pray every Sunday is against supernatural powers that would come against our gathering. And I ask for the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit 
to be present in this room. And if there is something supernatural and evil whose plan is to distract you from Jesus or knock you out of the race, I'd like God to take care of that for us on a Sunday morning. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of, as Christians, when there's issues in our life, we take a full court press. We, we address everything we can. So if we're struggling, this is a side note, it's not in your notes. If we're really fighting against something, depression, loneliness, lust, you name it, we do a couple things. Number one, we look at our life and ask ourselves the question, am I opening the door to sin? Because I'm going to need to box that. Not wrap it up and ship it, right? I'm going to need to fight against that. Um, if this is something supernatural and evil that is coming against me to put these things on me, and wh- however that works, I'm going to pray against that. I'm going to cover my bases as a follower of Jesus. You can't overpray, right? You can't overpray as a Christian. It's okay. You can amen that. I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Cover your bases with what we're doing. All right, the third thing and the final thing for this morning that can lead us to falter in our faith are persecutors. So now we're going to tie back into Hebrews 11, the beginning of Hebrews 12. The first two I gave are in some ways easing us into what's coming in Hebrews 12. This part's going to go directly back to what moved us into this discussion. So I would define persecution this way, or persecutors are those who seek to dismiss, shame, humiliate, embarrass, or harm followers of Jesus. That could be emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, and ultimately spiritually, simply because they are followers of Jesus. Make clear before I go on. If someone comes against you because you're a jerk, they're not coming against you because you're a follower of Jesus. They're coming against you because you're a jerk. We all on the same page on this. I'm talking about when someone comes against us because of a stand we are taking for our faith. Not because we're idiots as we take that stand. Okay. Here's the first thing. Just be ready for it. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. Now, he's overcome the world. He'll help you overcome that trouble and that you can remain spiritually strong. But in the world, you will have trouble. And to Hebrews 11, some people are going to have serious trouble. Some people are going to be sawn in half because they took a stand for Jesus. Some people are going to be blown up in their churches on Easter morning simply because they are Christians. Right? These things are going to happen. In this world, you'll have trouble. It's part of what taking up a cross looks like. I don't know what we had in mind when we gave our lives to Jesus. And Jesus says, now listen, you need to know this. If you follow me, you get a cross. Oh, what does that look like? Oh, it is heavy. You're going to drag it. You're, this is a reference to crucifixion, right? We, we will participate in his suffering so that we can appreciate the power of his resurrection. This is part of the deal. Uh, uh, when we give our lives to Jesus, it is not a promise that life will be easy in the empire in which we live. This is true in any country, any nation around the world. Uh, America is no different. You're going to suffer as a Christian. There is the empires of the world, the kingdoms of the world are not aligned with the kingdom of heaven. These aren't. Some of them are more closely aligned than others. 
But at the end of the day, they're not the kingdom of heaven. They're other kingdoms. You will, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, you will have hardship in the place in which you live. Now, we, we are in some ways really blessed that we live in a nation that has not pushed back on us too hard. And I was thinking about this week, and I honestly can't think of any situation I've been in in my life where as a follower of Jesus, I have had to pay a financial penalty or any kind of physical penalty for being a follower of Jesus. My life's been pretty cushy as a follower of Jesus. Now, have people argued with me about my faith? Absolutely. Have people referred to me as an idiot for being a Christian? Absolutely. I've had plenty of conversations with people who do not agree with me, who are very dismissive and very demeaning, and they really think I'm not that smart of a guy. That's fine. I, I kind of expect that, right? Isn't that part of the deal? It's foolishness. What I believe is foolishness to the world. To people outside the church, I am a fool. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a fool for believing this crazy stuff we celebrate on Easter. It's part of the deal. If we're not ready for that, I don't think we understood what we were getting into. We didn't become followers of Jesus to be seen as cool. We became followers of Jesus to give our lives for the sake of Jesus. Now, there's times in my life where I've had to make decisions where the result of these decisions that I felt this was the path God had for me, and that is not, and I chose this path, I could have made more money on that path. I could have benefited in particular kind of very physical, very American ways had I gone that direction. But my personal, my conscience said, no, you got to go here, Anthony. Okay, but that's not persecution, right? That's just me trying to be faithful to what God has called me to be. And, and honestly, I expect that our trials will increase. This is the trend in the West. If you look at what happens in Europe, you look at what's happening in Canada, you can see the trend beginning to build here in the States. I think especially we will have more and more financial hardship that will come our way as Christians because of laws that go into place that don't allow us or try to force us to do particular things. That's the trajectory of every nation throughout the history of the world if you give them enough time. So I, I think we're getting there, or we're starting to build in that direction. Um, nobody is spilling their blood in the West on behalf of Christ that I know of simply for being Christian. It's happening um, in the East and maybe even in the global South, but we have been spared that at this point. So I wonder then the best way how we can tell how we'll respond in the face of that kind of persecution. And I think the best way we can do it is to ask ourselves, how are we responding now to the trials we're getting now? Because we've already talked about sin. Sin is a trial. Sin is a thing that will test our faith, right? But we're going to live in a culture where at some point we are going to face pushback for our faith because people don't agree with with us and they think we're foolish. So we're going to experience some pushback. What does it look like now? Well, best I can tell, our general response is to really get outraged. So when store employees can't say Merry Christmas, or when politicians say Easter worshipers instead of Christians, or when Christian movies don't get shown in enough theaters or get unfair ratings, or when businesses or organizations must give up income to follow their conscience, or when Twitter isn't fair to Christians, we seem to lose our minds 
And only one of those that I mentioned costs us anything. I mean, that's if your business is affected. The rest of them, people who think we're fools, are acting as if we're fools. Should that surprise us? Am I stepping on toes here? This feels like an uncomfortable silence. These are trials. What did we expect? Do I expect people who aren't Christians to speak in an honorable way about Easter? I don't. Do we expect Twitter and Facebook to have algorithms that cater to us? I don't. Why, why would they? They think we're fools. These things ought not shake us, friends. This, Jesus told us 2,000 years ago, get ready. If you follow me, buckle up. It's going to be uncomfortable. People aren't going to like you. I mean, be as likable as you can. Don't misunderstand. People flock to Jesus other than the super religious. They flocked to Jesus. It's astonishing the people who loved the man who said, I came to die for your sins. They loved him. I think it's possible for Christians to be genuinely loved by a lot of people just because you're a Christian. Some people it's going to make angry, but there's no reason that that we don't show a compelling view of Christ. But these things ought not shake us. First of all, I think we have to be real careful here in the United States about what we call oppression or progression. I think it dishonors Christians around the world who are being blown up and who are being burned alive. I, I was trying to envision this week, seriously, if I talk to a Christian from Sri Lanka and they go, what's it like in the United States? They won't call Easter worshipers Christians. Oh, oh, my brother got blown up Easter Sunday. I'm so glad we can participate in persecution. Does that, do you hear me on this? Okay, second, in any circumstance, we must remember who we are. And this is the thing I want to end with. In the midst of things that push against us as Christians, who are we? Our identity in Christ is crucial in response to this. We are people who claim that a peace of God that passes understanding reigns in our hearts. We are a people who claim that our kingdom is not of this world. If it were, said Jesus, you could fight, but it's not so. We are people who turn the other cheek when we're struck. We're people who despise shame like Jesus did because we have joy set before us. We are people whose Savior offered water to idolatrous Samaritans and forgiveness to criminals and an apostleship to a murderer. We are people who love our enemies and do good to those who hurt us, and we pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. We are people who will know the power of Jesus' resurrection through the fellowship of his suffering. 
We are people who rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, these are public opportunities for us to show all these things. How blessed are we that we're finally moving into an era in American history where we have opportunities constantly to show a hostile world what it looks like to have peace in our heart that passes understanding. What it looks like to turn the other cheek when struck. What it looks like to despise shame and do good for people who are trying their best to not do good to us. Do you realize how blessed we are to be able to do that now in ways we couldn't before? These are exciting times. Finally, on a national and very public stage, we get this chance to show what we're made of. And if it escalates, and I'm certain certain that it will, thank you, God, for giving us the opportunity to show then and more how much the work is that you've done in our life, that these things don't shake and rattle us, and that this love that we claim that we have is such a real thing, and now our nation and the world can see it on display as the church responds, as Jesus responded. Oh man, I'm, ex- I'm excited about this. Cities on a hill shine brightest when it's the darkest. If we waver now while the shadows are few, I fear for what we'll do when night comes. Now is the time to see every test of our faith as a glorious refinement. Can can I just say, the church shines when it does hard things well. If life gets harder, this is our opportunity to shine. This is not our time to retreat or get angry, or curl up in a ball, or any of the, this is our opportunity to step into it and go, watch what it looks like for the people of God to love this world. So as the writer of Hebrews says, let's not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. He's using this to perfect our faith. As we get into the next part of Hebrews, the writer's going to say it even more. Look at all these things God is using to perfect your faith. Isn't that awesome? Meanwhile, Jesus stands before us as our model, and a cloud of witnesses beckons us to join them in our faithful, obedient endurance. Lord, uh, I'm grateful that you are a perfecting God. I'm grateful that though in this world we will have trouble, you enable us to overcome the world as we wrestle and we fight against sin. As we live in a world that's going to challenge our faith and offer us trials and then persecution, Lord, I'm grateful that you're a God who tells us not to shy away from that and be afraid, but to be ready to watch how God will use these things for our good and for your glory. Lord, I pray that we're a people that can be excited about this. 
that we can see uh, uh, the mission field before us. That we have a chance now more and more and more and more publicly to show what it looks like that Christ in us is the hope of glory. May we not squander this historical moment. Praise in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.